Welcome to Meraki Mentors, a podcast featuring women who create. We interview creatives from every field and around the globe to discuss art, risk-taking, and what it means to live a creative life. Here's your host, Candace Howes. If you ever thought theater or performance art was boring, you're definitely mistaken. And this week's guest, Katie Kachelina, will tell you exactly why. A product of the South, Katie's work as a performance artist in Brooklyn is truly effective and authentic. I was interested not only in the impact that such a big city has had on her work, but the role that community plays in an artist's life. This episode, Katie shares her thoughts on breaking rules, finding humility, and how to unlearn academia. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? Hey everyone, welcome back to Meraki Mentors. I'm so, so excited today to share our guests with you. Um, We are speaking today to Katie, who is one of my dear classmates um, and friends and someone who always inspires me. So I'm going to start us off by just kind of giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself and just kind of um, tell us a little bit about your background and what kind of art you do. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Candace. Um, so I'm Katie K. Chalina. I'm a performance artist and member of the New York Neo-Futurists. So um, a lot of the work that I do is experimental theater and um, a lot of like poetic texts in performance and movement work. So I, I like to think of theater as a multidisciplinary practice. Um, by definition. And I just try to have as much fun on stage with people as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that is, um, that's awesome. I, I love theater. Like I haven't been able to go to a ton of plays in my life, but I've been to a few and I love kind of like you said, that multidisciplinary aspect where you're engaged, but you're also a viewer and it's just so much that goes into theater. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. What um, what would you say kind of drew you to the performing arts? Um, you know, were you always kind of interested in it or did you find it along the way? I was definitely always a ham, <laughs> you know? Um, like I remember my my parents always tell this story about how when I was basically an infant, just like a teeny tiny baby. I was going to the mall with my family and there was this little stage in the middle of the mall and I just ran up onto it and started singing Christmas songs. I don't know if I could actually speak, but I I would have this like sing song tone to my voice trying to trying to imitate adults when I was very, very young. So I think it's always been part of me. I think I've always loved connecting with people on stage and and sort of thinking about the different ways that stages exist in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, like not in a building where everyone sits and we stay in our seats very quietly and politely for an hour and a half and then we go home. Mm-hmm. I, I think that theater has always been this really expansive thing for me, even since I was very young. I love that there's that element, you have that kind of innate 
aspect of yourself that was always kind of alluding to this because I think we all have those you know those parts of our personality or those things that were just naturally drawn to you for a particular reason and it's awesome that you had that at such a young age and always kind of knew that that was something you wanted to do yeah it's just sort of it's it's never been a question for me Mm -hmm. I mean one of the one of the wonderful things about the theater company that I'm a part of, the neo-futurists, is that one of our rules, our sort of uh, defining aesthetic principles, is that you're never playing a character, you are always yourself. And so to, to have so many opportunities to just perform one's own life and, and, and think about the self as something that is completely worthy of being on stage without having to put on anything is I think super, super interesting to me and very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a whole different, you know, take on theater of, of being yourself and having that kind of self-awareness. What, tell us a little bit about, you know, the neo-futurists and kind of what that company has been like for you. Yeah. So, so (laughs) the, the neo-futurists, we, we produce, write, direct, and perform a ever-changing weekly show called The Infinite Wrench. And in The Infinite Wrench, we um, <laughs> we create 30 approximately two-minute plays, and we set a timer for an hour, and we let the audience pick the order that they want to see the plays in. So it is bananas. It's wild. <laughs> and so, they, you know, there's only so much you can be ready for that uh that environment with so many variables and then our aesthetic rules are that we we follow four principles we are who we are we're doing what we're doing so if we're drinking brown liquor on stage we're really drinking it um if we're bleeding we didn't mean to it's an accident (laughs) and uh the time is now and we are where we are so it's super specific. It's super fun. It's very regimented, but then that um, all of these very specific rules give us this freedom to, I think, just break things as much as possible. It's like we need the bones to be able to put that breath into it. Was it something that kind of came natural to you or was that kind of a whole new different experience? Because I know there would be some, you know, performance artists who might be like, wow, this is wacky and I've got to get my mind around it. How was that transition for you? Well, I've always I've always been interested in more um, sort of uh, truthful work or like avant garde in the sense that the the self and real life can be completely avant garde. Right. Like reality mm-hmm. is avant-garde. <laughs> yes. And um and so I I think another part of why it's sort of come easily to me is because, you know, I wrote a lot of I, I I've written a lot of poetry and it's mostly sort of confessional style poetry. And then to take that same, you know, bare hearted, very open very very honest storytelling style and to put it on stage has always just felt like home to me Mm -hmm. because all we can do all we can do on stage is tell our stories and have you know the hope that 
that story is common. And it always is. Like, there's always a common thread. I think that's such an important point because often, and this can be really for any genre of art, but I feel like for so many people, they get caught up in like what they think people want or like what does the audience want? What does the art world want? You know, what's going to make me famous? But keeping that consistency and that authenticity of this is my life or this is what I'm feeling and not trying to connect with someone else is the key. Yeah, it's like, here's what I've got. And take it or leave it, pretty much. And, you know, I think another part of it is that um, because because The Infinite Wrench is a weekly show, we're generating new material every single week. So there's no time to worry about, oh, is this good? Is this smart enough? Is it cool enough? You know, is it radical? No, 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 there's no time. You just make it. You just make the thing and and you learn from it. Mm. You know? Yeah, I yeah, I love that because that's isn't it the hardest part to get over? It's like you said, thinking, always questioning these things. Is it good? Did, is this right? All that does is just gets you sitting there and you have nothing. Exactly. You gotta you've gotta go out and do it. You have to get out and do it. That's totally it. There's um oh, and now I'm forgetting who said it. But it's like people will go into like a modern art gallery and they'll look at something on the wall that looks like scribbles and they'll say, oh, I could have done that. But did they do it? No. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, and that's why that person's there and you're looking at it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's so hard to... I think that I'm still unlearning a lot of what I picked up in academia. Mm -hmm. And I find it extremely valuable to unlearn. Mm. I, I think we learn the rules so that we can break them. And we learn our artistic history in order to know like whose shoulders we stand on, but also what needs to change and what needs to shatter and how we can build something from those shattered pieces. I, I've been out of I've been out of school for about three years, and I think so much of the time <laughs> how how boring theater is because it it adheres to so many of these like academic principles that I don't think are actually useful in the way that we tell stories and that people respond to stories. Yeah, I definitely understand that it's. There can be so many, so many rules and so many lanes that you have to stay in constantly that you don't get to experience and create the mess that life is on its own. Exactly, exactly. When you're, when you're satisfying a rubric or you're satisfying like, oh, you have to approach this in, you, you, you know, acting is a Stanislavski based form or whatever it is. That can only go so far when you're making things for people right now. Those old forms and those old practices, I believe, don't necessarily serve us. They serve us in that they inform our understanding of our history, which is, of course, vital. But Mm -hmm. let's get some new stuff going. When you talk about 
that aspect or that idea, I should say, of, you know, unlearning all of these rules and academia. For you personally, what has that process been like? Do you find that just kind of over time you look up and you're like, wow, you know, I see that differently? Or is it kind of an intentional thing of let me approach this from another viewpoint? I think it's a very intentional process because all the systems of our world also exist in our artistic systems and in our educational systems, right? So Mm -hmm. to unlearn something like classism, which I think is especially um, intense and present in theater as an art form, it has to be an intentional practice or else I'll fall right back into it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I hear nearly every day that I need to get an MFA to be able to work in theater. And I just do not buy into that. Yeah. I don't buy into it. And I think I think there is a system that absolutely does. And it's one thing to create connections within academia. That's totally valuable. But there are so many ways to create performance work that I think it's extremely limiting to have this mindset where you can only work in the art form in one way. Yeah. I think in so many ways it can really crush originality and all of the all of the potential innovation you could have in the arts because everyone is saying, oh, well, this is the way I'm supposed to do it. So let me scrap this idea and do what everyone else told me to do. Totally. Yeah. And I think, I think in addition to that, it squashes our selves, like our own stories. I mean, when you're in acting school and you focus in on what your type is, it begins there. Mm-hmm. We we put ourselves into these very specific roles immediately. Oh, what can I play? What do I look like? What stories do I belong in? Rather than how can I tell my story or how can I create something beautiful regardless of what I look like? It even controls what we feel or what we use to gauge if something is good or not or if it's done well or if it's couth enough for us to say that you know to give it applause or something you know completely completely there's so many there's so many parameters just just for you to experience to be able to say that you know this was awesome or this was a great work or think about the detail and the the thoughts that had to go behind it it's like there's so many so many gates up before you can even just let that go and say this was good art here. Exactly. And so many so many gates that you have to pass through or knock on just to be able to get to production. Mhm. It takes ooh, it takes so much to produce one show. It takes so much money, it takes so much time, yeah. coordination, it takes so many yeses mm-hmm. from so many people that it's it's hard to create performance work especially with a lot of people in like your own company how many people you know at any given time are in the company there's about 20 active neo futurists 
So, so members of the company who are in the show or creating work with the company at any given time. And then everybody sort of has side projects mm-hmm. and is just constantly churning out material. That's pretty par for the course yeah. in terms of experimental theater artists because we just want to we just want to make stuff all the time it's like a constant churning always always keeping the wheel going always always thinking and i would i would this is obviously something i think most artists do naturally but i'm sure it's kind of intensified probably your ability to like observe things on a daily basis externally as well as internally yeah i mean I think I think a major part of being an artist, any kind of artist, is to be as alive and as present and as open to every moment as possible. You know, I'm I'm mm-hmm. in my room looking at, you know, the shadow of the leaves on my windowsill. And it's like, there we go. That's something. We can make something out of that. Yeah. And I <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm absolutely, I'm, I subscribe to the idea of like, always have a notebook on you no matter what at all times. Yes. And same here. we have to, we have to collect, mm. we have to point to the things that are not so easily seen or that are easy to pass by and hold them into the light. I think that's what being an artist is. Yeah. I couldn't even say that better myself, but you're absolutely <laughs> Like, look at this thing that is so gorgeous or is so important or is so painful even. Mm -hmm. And let's all slow down and really look at it and take time and turn up the contrast on it and make sure that it's as bright or as sorrowful or as happy as possible. Whatever it is, just like turning it up, turning up the dial of intensity on the world always being like you said present always being engaged in some way i think that that in itself is a challenge because we have so many things pulling our attention right everything is pulling us away from our environment and away from what's happening around us instead of actually telling us to be quiet for a moment and appreciate or question the things that are in our environment just as it is oh my gosh this yes this is reminding me of something that one of my old teachers used to say. Um, Joe Baker, who taught the first viewpoints and Suzuki class that I ever took, which is like a physical, a physical theater training. Mm-hmm. I remember he always said, "You have to, you have to have one foot fully on the gas." and one foot fully on the brake so that your body mm. especially as a as a performing artist there has to be this tension in your body that keeps you completely still but at any moment you could spring forth into the world and i love thinking about that i love thinking about that. foot mm. fully down on the gas foot fully down on the brake because that stillness is as yeah. important as the as the action. I would imagine that it would be easy, right? Because there's so many different opportunities. But did you find it difficult or 
really easy to kind of get involved in the art scene and find a, a space that, you know, you were comfortable in? I found it actually pretty easy to find my little spot in my own art scene. And I think a huge part of that was because I had so many friends that were already working here. Um, and especially, I, I especially am so grateful for some of my older friends who knew that I needed to, I I needed to get to work right away, you know? And so yeah. I, I had people who would sort of lift me up and recommend me for projects. And so I was able to do of a lot of, do a lot of assistant directing right when I moved here, which was wonderful. Awesome. My friend, my friend Nathaniel Claridad, who is an incredible director, had me assist him on a bunch of different shows. And that was wonderful because I got to meet so many more folks that ended up being really valuable members of my community, of my artistic community. And so from that point, I started to say, you know, I really... I really do want to be writing my own work. I want to be performing my own work. So where are the opportunities for me to do that? Yeah. So getting into it, getting into it, I, I felt very supported. I think what's harder is building an actual life where I can pay my bills in New York. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> That's the... <laughs> that's the hard part yeah i would imagine i was gonna say that i think that's the part of it it's like yeah how do i do that <laughs> yeah i have no like i know how to make art i know how to make art but it, you know paying paying brooklyn rent i don't know <laughs> i don't know how to do that so i had to figure that out real quick absolutely um coming to that that space and kind of finding your niche there um, did you feel there were any kind of like misconceptions that you might have had, or you know, was it everything you thought? Was it harder? Was it not as bad? Like, what was that? What is that experience like looking back on that transition? You know, we always hear the story of the starving artist, mm -hmm. or you know, there's the joke that if you move to New York to work in theater, you're just going to wait tables forever. Yeah. And I think there's a scarcity mindset when people think about moving to New York to make art. And I think that scarcity mindset comes from maybe from, maybe from art as a practice being divorced from community. We've helped each other find jobs and like empowered each other to have those resources that you need, not just to make art, but just to like live in this intensely difficult city to live in. Exactly. Yeah. Right. When I moved here, you know, I, I was working in coffee shops and I was babysitting and I was just trying to scrap anything together. Right. Mm -hmm. And because I focused on my community and building my community and asking for help when I needed it, which is so hard. <laughs> yes. Um, it, is. It, really is, it really is. But because I, I, that was part of my practice, you know, my day jobs now are teaching theater and teaching devising and poetry writing. 
And so I'm able to actually use my skill set for my income, which is wonderful. And I feel I feel super lucky to do that. But yeah, there's there's such a scarcity mindset that people talk about, oh, you're gonna be a waiter forever, or oh, you have to jump through all these hoops and it's not gonna be worth it. And it is worth it. There are just all these myths that surround it. I like that idea of scarcity because there's all these voices because everyone focuses going to wait tables and be an, an actress or something. They keep saying, I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to try to be an actor, but I'm just going to wait tables until it happens. Like, wait, wait, what are you manifesting? Yeah. Being a waiter. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think you're right. It's It all starts in, in how we view it how we explain it what we tell people we're doing the idea like you said that you're you go to a place or you do a certain job to try to become something else and not already walk in what it is that that you are and that you're trying to become like yes. I'm trying to be, it's like no I'm an actor this is where I work now this might be the job I have but I am an actor like you've got to speak those things instead of just like oh yeah it's gonna fall on me one day as you know I, I carry someone their cinnamon roll and latte <laughs> <laughs> and also like is that the type of work that you want to be making where someone bestows upon you the opportunity to make something? Or do you want to actively create the circumstances and the work that you want to be making? See, that that is the that is a serious question. I think and that I think also it's so crucial, but I think that's the scary part because people don't really want to look at their lives and have the idea that they've got that much control over what happens to them. Oh, it's terrifying to be your complete authentic self because then people can mm -hmm. judge you on it. This is who I am and this is my truth and this is the kind of art that I make. Then it hurts when that gets rejected. Exactly. I've had such great feedback and then every once in a while I'll talk to a friend or a colleague or someone who sees a thing I've made and they say, hmm, well, <laughs> eyebrows go up a little bit. The eyebrows go up and it's like, you're what? You're doing what? And I, it, it's hard to create boundaries when your role as an artist is to be open to the slings and arrows all the time. I think it's, it's in so many ways, it's, it's a scary place to be, but then I feel like once you find your stride, it's a liberating place because you find yeah. a deeper sense of identity and self-worth than the average person has. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, how, how, how beautiful to do work and to create things where you must change constantly and where you have to hold yourself accountable and where you have to develop your own practice and hold yourself to it my artistic practice helps me be more alive it allows for for so much more freedom and growth and just learning how to process things in a healthy way and to get through things it's it's just countless just how many how many literally critical life skills a person can develop just through art making alone yeah and that's that's why i love 
teaching it, especially to young people. Young people are radical. Young people have no filter. They have great ideas. They make the most experimental, bizarre work. They do. And it develops all of those things that we've been talking about. It's like, you're creating catharsis when you're a teenager. Ooh, that's going to help you. Ooh, that's going to help you. Yes. <laughs> it's like, you don't even know yet how much you're going to need this. You don't even know how much you are saving on therapy right now. <laughs> right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. When, um, <laughs> and we, and we even talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, thinking about you know, creating um, these communities and finding these spaces. Um, wh what have you found is um, important in the environment to just kind of support that process of you being an artist and growing as an artist? I always say that space and time are the biggest things. Mm-hmm. You can you can build your community anywhere. You can you can build your community in your neighborhood. You can build your community around you know your identity. You can build your community through the network of people that you know. Like there are so many ways to get your people and then get those people in a room at the same time is how it's made. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree. I think and time has definitely been one of those major things to me. So I think it's so great that you said that because I've just, I've noticed over the years, just how valuable my time is and yes. how much I wasted, how much I can, mm. you know, be productive with it. So space, definitely, like you said, and yeah, that, that time making it and, and appreciating it and understanding what you can really do with time. Totally. And I think, I think another thing that's really necessary for me is as an individual, I, I think space and time is a, is a, is a community art making focus. And then for mm -hmm. me, I need to have access to nature period. I need to have it. Yeah. Cause if I, if I don't, I feel I, I, I have nothing in the well that I can draw from. Mm. you know so yeah so at least once a week even though I live in the city I I try to go to a park and spend as much time as I can in the park and one of my <laughs> one of the programs that I teach with has me at a uh a residency in Far Rockaway mm -hmm. and so every Wednesday morning after I teach this Shakespeare class, I go to the beach and I just look at the water and I feel the sand and I try to slow down and be quiet and do whatever I need to do to be present at the beach. And then I go back to work. Yeah. And there's definitely something about being at the ocean and the beach that I don't know what it does like to this day like I always go to the beach and I'll just write a bunch of stuff and I still feel like I can't properly express what mm. that 
does emotionally for me at any given point like regardless of what's going on I just always feel like it kind of like calms me and like gets me back somewhere that I need to be yeah yeah I think for me it's about feeling like I'm a small piece of something massive yes yeah you know like I I grew up moving all over the south and I I I always say that I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, just because that's where my family sort of settled after a lot of moving. Mm-hmm. And so I have always had access to these expansive, beautiful, natural spaces, mm-hmm. especially the mountains. So I I need to be humbled constantly. I think we all need to be humbled constantly. And nature will do it, no question. Nature will do it no matter what. And that, yeah, that's, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the idea of, of being humble because you you feel so small when you're in these places. And I think that that is important when when we're constantly caught up in ourselves and what we're trying to do. We need that to settle us back in. Yeah, and to be not not even necessarily a good artist, but like a useful artist or a an artist who people can can actually connect to Mm -hmm. because if it if it's me 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 all the time that's not gonna do anything I'm pointing at all the beautiful things in my life so that we can look at them together and so that my life can then become Mm -hmm. our life if if an artist does not humble themselves and it becomes the me show, then I don't have a way to connect to the me That's show. That's very true. That is so true. <laughs> you can't connect when it's when it's all me. And and I think we all know or have seen someone at some point doing that and it, it does not work at all. It's one thing to be confessional and it's another to be cocky. God, I hate seeing cocky art. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, right? (laughs) Talk about creative pet peeves. Like, I'm over it. I'm over it. Bye. (laughs) Done. Give me my money back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm I'm of the, um, I guess, of the fabric in a sense that I think we learn the most, obviously, from other people's mistakes or missteps or things what do you think is one of the best kind of lessons that you've learned personally in art it could be in any way from something you feel you might have kind of messed up but you were like that was a lesson I needed oh my god biggest failures I love talking about failure I think yes oh my god artists never talk about failure and it drives me crazy it's like I know it's a let's be humble right oh my gosh it comes back oh (laughs) We're back. I love it. You know, I think let's pick one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, let's pick one from the list. I think that I spent so much time right when I moved to New York going on these like equity auditions for roles that. I did not care about, but I knew I could probably pull off. And 
I pushed, I pushed everything down so deep. Like I pushed my artist completely away from me because of that scarcity mindset. Mm-hmm. When I was trying to get back to, to authenticity and to abundance, I, when I work on something as an artist that I don't believe in or that doesn't feel in line with what I'm doing, mm-hmm. I am wasting my time. I am wasting resources. And I'm taking resources away from someone who could be speaking their heart, you know? Yeah. And um, as soon as that hit me, I started to say no so much more. I think my biggest mistake in New York and like in North Carolina and in my life has been saying yes to everything. That's very true because we're always taught pleasing and being as people and especially as women too, even more so always being taught that, you know, you've got to make peace and, you know, let's just make everyone happy and not thinking about yourself or what you need. And like, don't rock the boat, you know, don't, don't be contrary. I don't even call myself an actor anymore because I feel like the role of actor has no power creatively to say no. That's how I Mm -hmm. always felt as an actor. And um, it's a, it's a really hard place to be in to hold your artist hostage it's brutal. It's brutal. And it's unfair to you and it's unfair to other people. So I had to, I had to have a little come to Jesus moment and say, don't say yes to everything. (laughs) Exactly. No, I, I still find myself constantly, constantly fighting that concept because you're, you're always, you know, concerned with how the other person feels, or maybe not even that, but you're just thinking, you know, oh, you know, this, this might be my chance. You know, I don't, I don't have the luxury. You feel like you don't have the luxury of saying no, you know, like these, these are the only two things out here. So I need to just take it. But yeah, yeah. A lot of times you're you're undercutting yourself in the process. You are putting off the, I always call it the soul work. You're putting off the soul work that you in order to create the opportunity for yourself exactly and you know what and I think we do that to ourselves so much because you you hear people doing things especially in the arts and it's like it's either something that people feel is going to sell and can be commercial or they're like oh you're doing a passion project you know like it's some lesser thing that (laughs) no one wants to be involved with but you're doing it because it makes you feel happy yeah and it's like what what's wrong with doing something that makes you feel happy damn Right. <laughs> we against happiness now? Right. It's like, I didn't realize that was such a problem. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it comes back to the classism that exists within art, where if you are not making it in a certain way, if you're not generating all of your income from your art-making practice, if you're, you know, doing a project in your basement, then suddenly mm-hmm. it's not legitimate and it doesn't count as art. That is 
I, I, can I curse? It's bullshit. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. No, please do, because you're absolutely right. And, you know, the thing is, if someone was really famous or if they had a lot of money and they were making a TV show in their in their basement or their bedroom, we would all be watching oh, it. we would love it. And if one of those famous people had a documentary where they went back into their childhood and they showed all the things that they made in their room or the weird little hut that they made in the woods, I don't know. I, I did stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> then it would be oh this person was so creative and they've always been an artist but it exactly you don't have a certain level of notoriety or like you don't fit within the hierarchy for whatever reason then you're you're relegated to the outside and that's not fair and it's not real it's made up it is you're absolutely right and it's I'm not sure what like the process would be of, of breaking those things down, but I think it's it's a fight that has to be continually, you know, fought because at the end of the day, there are people out here and the ideas that they have are fantastic. The ideas may even be okay, but people need to hear them and we just don't listen because someone they don't have the zeros in their bank account or you know, the house that says that we should listen to them. Yeah. Or, you know, they're excluded from the canon. Exactly. I think it's a huge part about it. Maybe, maybe they did have, maybe there are, there are definitely artists who have massive followings and who just don't get acknowledged in the canon, which is why I specifically call out academia all the time. If we don't even know that we have artistic ancestors and that we come from a certain creative lineage right then there's no way for us mm -hmm. to learn from the people who come before us that's it that's it and no and you're absolutely right and I think people who I admire who I admire just as much as you know all the big names and people like you said that we study and that are in the canon and everyone says you know you should be following and not to take away from those people but we've got such an expansive place and the fact that you go in museums and there aren't a lot of women on the walls or people from different parts of the world and it's just like how much are we missing and how much richer could our history and our understanding of ourselves just as humanity be if we were actually exposed to all of the things that have been created in yes society? yes oh credit where credit is due what kind of things are you up to like obviously you're doing the the company but do you have other kind of things that you set your sights on that are coming up or just you know general dreams that you have Ooh, dreams it's my favorite thing <laughs> i i love dreams right so yeah i'm um i'm in the middle of a run of the infinite wrench right now with the neo futurist which is super fun um, I'm teaching lots of classes, which takes up most of my weekday time. And then I'm working on a triptych of performance and film pieces. Mm. I have a screenplay and a choreo poem and a puppet show that sort of represent the different levels of this this world that I've created. Um, that's very much about like growing up being a queer woman in Appalachia. Mm. So yeah, super dreamy, super um super 
image-based, and I'm, I'm super excited to flesh those projects out a little more. So as soon as I, as soon as I finish my run with the Neo-Futurists, I'm going to go into like hibernation writing mode. Yes, I'm all for hibernation writing mode. <laughs> yeah, come February, I'm going to be like a wild woman just clacking away at the keys. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And it it sounds it sounds every bit as good as I know it's going to be. So I can't wait for it. Oh my god, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, that is fantastic. We 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 chug along. We keep making the things. Actually, you know, so it snowed. It snowed in North Carolina. My parents. Got, yes. My parents got a ton of snow, and my dad sent me this page from a Hemingway book that he was reading, and the last line on this page was, "Now it is time to get back to the grindstone," and I was like, "Oh." God, mm. it is it's always mm-hmm. time to get back to the grindstone. So thanks, Hemingway. Thanks, Dad. Exactly. Yeah, Dad. Dad is awesome. I already love your dad. <laughs> <laughs> pretty rad. Pretty rad. Hi, Anthony. Um. All right. So I'm going to um start off our uh, Meraki picks. So it's our fun three random questions about favorite things you know food music Ooh. everybody's favorite stuff right Sweet. i'm so, ready all right so number one is what's one of your favorite restaurants and by favorite i mean somewhere that you think every person on the planet should go to oh okay so <laughs> i'm gonna choose not necessarily a restaurant but a chocolate place Ooh, that's even better Right? I I fully agree. So there's um, a place in Asheville, North Carolina called the French Broad Chocolate Lounge. They they moved into a bigger space since I have lived there, which is really cool. Um, But they have like the most incredible desserts on the planet. Their truffles are bonkers good. And they have... (laughs) They have a beer float, like an Ooh. ice cream beer chocolate float. That is that sounds incredible. It is decadent. It is decadent. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody go about indulging yourself. Like I need to go here. Yeah, you gotta go. You gotta go. French Broad Chocolate Lounge. Awesome. Awesome. Um, all right. So number two, what is a piece of advice, quote, mantra, something you saw on a sign somewhere that, um, that you kind of live by? Ooh, that I live by. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think, oh, no, 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 no. I know what it is. I know what it is. Victor Frankel, Frankel or Frankel? I'm not sure. Um, Victor Frankel has this gorgeous quote that is what is to give light must endure burning. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What is to give light must endure burning. I'll I'll, like, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was about to say, I'm not, I don't even, I'm too scared to add anything. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that one. Mm Mm-hmm. 
All right. So last, but definitely not least, what song has been stuck in your head? <gasps> and if it's if you don't have a song, it could be an artist too. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, there. Okay, wait. There was a song that came up on my uh, Discover Weekly playlist from Spotify yesterday that is the most gorgeous thing I've ever heard. I love that Spotify like DJs for me and tells me things that I didn't know I should be listening to. Oh, right. A friend of <laughs> it's mine. It's the best. A friend of mine said recently or posted on Facebook, uh, why can't I date my Spotify Discover Weekly playlist? <laughs> I love that. I was like, why can't but I really though? Discover weekly playlist. So the song that has struck my soul and just scattered me into a million pieces is Hum by Adult Jazz. Mm. Hum by Adult Jazz. It's like six minutes long. It goes through, I swear to God, like 40 different universes. Oh. It's an, it's a, it is a journey. It's like 50 songs in the span of five minutes. Gorgeous. See, I love me. I love music like that. I love, I'm literally going to listen to it as soon as we get off. I'm excited. Yeah. It's like, it's expansive. I love it. Everybody listen to it. Definitely make sure that you, um, record, um, how we can follow you. So like if there's any social media or websites or anything where people can get in touch with you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you want to learn more about my work, um, or if you want to read some of my stuff or watch some videos, you can go to katiekchilina.com, uh, or you can follow me on Instagram at K, the letter K, Chilina, C-H-E-L-E-N-A, and uh, let's be friends. Hit me up. Awesome. Fantastic. Um... Katie, this has been so much fun. Like, I I promise you, when I get to Brooklyn, like, I'm gonna hit you up. I'm gonna if I have to stalk you and find you in a perform in the middle of a performance. <laughs> I <won't do> that. <laughs> Honestly, that sounds great. I'm a, we're fully gonna hang out in Brooklyn, and I'm excited about it. Absolutely, <laughs> has been so fun. I've had a great time. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So definitely, yeah. Thank you for for being here and sharing so many important things. I know it's going to be helpful for everyone. So I appreciate you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh my goodness, you all, we have to celebrate. It is our 12th episode, which is officially the season finale of season one. I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who's listened, who's followed us on social media, who's left a review or a rating on any podcast platform. You are so appreciated. I'm so happy that you are a part of the Meraki Mentors family. Please tell all of your friends, share with us as well as all of our amazing guests, um, some of the things that you've learned and that you've liked listening to over the past few episodes and anything that you're looking forward to in the future. I'm so thankful that we are on this story that we're writing together. And I just want to give a personal shout out to each and every listener. And thank you so much for being here with us. You've been listening to Meraki Mentors Podcast with Candace Howes. We're honored you chose to spend your time with us today. To learn more about today's guest or the podcast, visit MerakiMentorsPodcast.com. Don't forget to create and connect.